0: Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast, a show about nutrition, dietitians, and their success stories. This podcast, hosted by Kate Agnew and Marie Ferguson, will empower you to realize your professional dreams by giving you access to our global community of dietitians. Through our conversations with nutrition leaders, we'll educate you, inspire you, and help you create more impact as a dietitian.
1: I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land where you're listening. I'm recording this from the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and I pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. I extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are here with us today. I'm Jane Winter, Account Director at Dietitian Connection and I'm also an accredited practicing dietitian. Welcome to another Dietitian Connection podcast. Today, we're going to take a close look at exclusive enteral nutrition, or EEN, in the management of Crohn's disease. And while EEN is a first-line treatment in a paediatric setting, it's used less commonly in adults. And so that's where we're really focusing today. To explain more about using EEN for an adult population, I'm joined by Liz Purcell. Liz is an advanced accrediting practicing dietitian who's developed extensive clinical expertise in a range of practice domains and across the continuum of care, but has a particular interest with advanced clinical knowledge in gastroenterology, specifically inflammatory bowel disease, as well as intensive care nutrition. Over the past few years, Liz has contributed to the development of national guidelines, Australian standards and action plans while committing to her primary role as advanced gastro and ICU team leader within Metro South Health in Queensland. Liz is currently undertaking research in the area of exclusive enteral nutrition in the management of adults with Crohn's disease. And just a disclaimer, this podcast is not and is not intended to be medical advice, which should be tailored to your individual circumstances. The podcast is for your information only, and we advise that you exercise your own judgment before deciding to use the information provided. Professional medical advice should be obtained before taking action. And we'd like to thank Abbott for supporting our podcast today. So welcome, Liz, and thanks very much for your time today. Thank you for having me, Jane. Just before we start on the topic of exclusive enteral nutrition, can you give me a quick cook's tour of how you came to specialise in gastroenterology and critical care nutrition?
2: Certainly. Um, yes, I've been a dietitian for more years than I care to remember. At this stage, um, I've been a dietitian for 24 years now, um, and the first half of my career was in the NHS in the UK before moving to Australia in 2009. Um, and my interest with gastro specifically came about. Um, I was working in the John Radcliffe Hospital, Hospital in Oxford, which has a big gastroenterology, um, specifically IBD center, and I. Was lucky enough to work there, and I think I was. I started seeing patients who were a similar age to me, so very kind of relatable and identifiable, who were having you know debilitating conditions with this disease. And I just remember thinking, my goodness, you know, how would I cope with this, and what can I do to help? And I think my interest specifically kind of arose there, I suppose, and just always have had an interest in it
1: ever since. And you spoke to us at Dietitian Connection about uh, 12 months ago in a podcast episode, and for anyone listening, that was episode 84, and that introduced the concept of EEN as a management tool for IBD. So I think if anyone um, listening today didn't hear that, it's probably worth going back um, and hearing some of the background and uh, IBD versus IBS and where EEN sits as a management tool um, in inflammatory bowel disease. But today we're going to dive a bit deeper and we're really going to pick your brains about some of the specifics and, and practicalities of implementing exclusive enteral nutrition. Okay, sure. So firstly, how does the dietitian, the patient, the multidisciplinary team decide if EEN is the right pathway for that patient?
2: Well, Jane, at my hospital, we run a gastro clinic concurrently with the consultants, the IBD consultants. The idea being that it offers a one-stop shop for patients with inflammatory bowel disease or IBD. Um, it's, I'm delighted to say that dietitians are a very well-supported and valued contributor to the MDT at our hospital. Um, therefore, any dietary management, be it exclusive nutrition EEN, partial internutrition nutrition pen or cded which is crohn's disease exclusion exclusion diet um, is routinely considered by the consultants and patients referred onto the dietitian team following the consideration as a rule the consultants will touch on the recommended treatment be that EEN, and provide a brief overview but will leave the detailed explanation and
1: advocacy to us which is great so when you when you get that referral, um, what sort of things do you need to, to consider?
2: There's quite a few things, Jane. The most the patients most likely to be considered for EEN specifically and subsequently referred onto us for review are those not only who benefit from EEN, but also those willing and who feel they would be able to adhere so for example patients who are at risk of malnutrition or already undernourished or malnourished and there's a high incidence of these within the IBD cohort patients who are steroid dependent so the idea is that EN would be a way of potentially troids altogether uh, Crohn's disease inflammation or active inflammation particularly in the small bowel EN has been shown to be most effective patients who have stricturing or fistulating disease and I touched on that in the first podcast or any patient who would be likely to need surgery EN can be used as a bridging gap for that
1: um is there any sort of red flags that you need to be looking out for? or Is there a checklist of criteria that you use in deciding on whether it's suitable for a patient?
2: Yes, absolutely. Um, so one of the main advantages of EEN, which is the, is absolutely the area that I promote the most and cannot be underestimated is its safety. So EEN is considered very safe with minimum to no side effects. Um, And this is in stark contrast to many of the other treatment options available for patients with IBD. Um, And this is also why EEN remains the cornerstone of treatment for babies or children with Crohn's disease. Um, But the key potential barrier to EEN is is if the patient themselves feel they cannot adhere, and that's a big problem in the adult cohort. Additional barriers documented in the literature include things like lack of specialist knowledge about EEN and an overall lack of support while on EEN. Um, And I feel particularly strongly about, about this
1: area. So I imagine, just going off track a little bit, um, the attitude of the healthcare professional who's talking to the patient about EEN is really important here because if you have any kind of or portray any kind of negative connotations, then obviously you're adding to those barriers. A patient is not going to be terribly enthusiastic if the healthcare professional offering that looks like they wouldn't enjoy it. (laughs) absolutely
2: 100% jane yes um as a dietitian um i feel like we're the main advocate for een and it's important to have a you know, an intricate and comprehensive understanding of the potential pitfalls and the anticipated highs and lows of the EEN journey. Um, I remember working many, many years ago with a, um, he was a registrar with not a great deal of experience with EEN and he was selling it as a detox diet. And I remember saying, En is many things, but it is not a detox diet and should not be used specifically for a weight loss. Um, so ideally, you know, leave the advocacy up to us. But I suppose with everything, if the dietitian believes hundred percent in it and can share with the patient the short and long term benefits, the risks, potential side effects, there will be a greater chance of getting the the patient on board I'm a big fan Jane in Simon Sinnott's work and he always says um, a person doesn't buy what you're selling he buys why you sell it So I feel like the dietitian needs to show the patient why they believe in their recommendations while still allowing the patient I suppose complete freedom to choose and be part of their treatment plan
1: yes and that's a
2: yeah.
1: So so once, once a patient or a client has started on um, EEN, what sort of problems might um, you see arise and how do you troubleshoot? And I'm thinking of things like, you know, do they get a weight loss or obviously compliance, but what are the sort of problems that you see?
2: Mm, absolutely. There can be a few problems. Compliance in adults is a big one. But um, one of the um, things that we offer in my hospital, and this is the, the um, theory behind the research that we've just completed, is how we can get more adults to adhere to EEN. So we offer weekly support um, at our hospital and the patient is in current encouraged to contact the team between these reviews as required as potential issues may arise and can be tackled there and then and obviously the quicker they're tackled the less likely they are to develop into a, a problem but absolutely right some patients can experience unintentional weight loss and that would indicate that their nutritional needs for calories protein etc um, are not being achieved on the en and that would simply simply require adjusting the patient's current recommended dose of the drinks, and that can be tackled quite quickly and quite easily. Um, Poor compliance can be a slightly different issue. Um, EEN can be challenging at the best of times because, as a lot of you will be aware, um, EEN requires a patient to drink generally on average six to eight of these oral nutritional supplements per day with only water as an extra. So no other food or drink is generally permitted at all. Therefore, it requires a lot of support from family, and I strongly believe that's my role as well as the health professional. So it's encouraged where possible, or, or I will always encourage where possible that a spouse or family member attends the consultation, so that they're aware of the commitment and the support that's required. Sometimes without without any ill intent, um, family or friends can can sabotage the efforts a little bit. Um, as I said, without ill intent, but I think that's important to get them on board as well.
1: Yes. Yeah, so, so, Liz, you're talking six to eight a day, you're talking up to maybe one and a half litres of ONS over the course of a day.
2: That's correct. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, so if adherence obviously is a really crucial part to success of EN. Um, what tricks do you have to improve um, a patient's adherence?
2: Um, well, again, um, I touched on this already, Jane, but um, encouraging the patient from the start and giving them a say in their their treatment so initially in the first consultation i will always give them a sample pack of ons to try which includes maybe five or six different flavors and um again a lot of the dietitians out there will be well aware that the um the drinks generally a milk based form or a fruit juice based form and um, so obviously that's the first thing to allow the patient to tell you their flavor preferences it's more likely They will adhere. Um, I always encourage the patient to spread the drinks out over the day. So, for example, maybe A drink for breakfast, one mid morning, one or two for lunch, one mid afternoon, two in the evening, one for supper, that kind of thing. And this will help prevent the patient from getting too hungry throughout the day and consequently help reduce the temptation to think about food or or miss food throughout the day. Many years ago, Jane, I put myself on EEN because I felt it was important that I had a good understanding of what I was asking the patient to do. Now, admittedly, I only did it for a week. But um, it gave me a great insight into just the general things that patients might be feeling. So I started to miss the sensation of chewing food, for example, or mm-hmm. suddenly every ad on television was food, even if it wasn't for food, I, I thought it was. <laughs> but um, ways around that are, are little tips and tricks that you can do is you can heat the drinks and have them warm. And this is particularly good with kind of chocolate and coffee flavour drinks. You can decant them into a container or mould and freeze them. And depending on how long you freeze them for, if you freeze them short for short periods, they come out kind of like a frozen yogurt consistency or for longer, like kind of ice pole consistency. And that helps an awful lot as regards a different texture and chewing. You can decant them into ice trays and have them like lollies throughout the day if you're a little bit peckish. Um, drinking them with a straw often helps, adding crushed ice can help and again gives the kind of a slush puppy consistency or you know um, and then as i said offering regular support will help engaging family members and friends as a support network i often encourage the patient to set weekly obviously non-food <laughs> rewards for them um and there is an extreme cases although we don't do it very often at my hospital but there is the potential to offer um it via Ninji tube and um, that's obviously extreme but that very that works extremely well in places like Japan where you have a very compliant culture <laughs> yeah. but generally speaking in the majority of the cases oral
1: yeah and with your experience um do you have, and uh, I guess we we did touch a little bit on this before, but your particular approach when you are advocating um, EEN for the patients?
2: Yeah, again, um, I'm a big believer in you know engaging them for the entire journey, being completely transparent with them, acknowledging that it is a big ask, and I don't underestimate how difficult it is to do EEN, um, and encouraging them to. Take up the option to, you know, give me a call if they're having a bad day or they just need a little of a, a little bit of a, a pep talk. <laughs> but also that, you know, I will touch base with them a minimum of once a week, and that is always Jane to to suit their lifestyle. So that that can be face to face or it can be over phone or it can be. Um, telehealth whichever suits them because of this cohort and because they're generally a younger population most of them will be working so a lot of them will opt for telephone call or
0: telehealth
2: Um, but certainly in the research that we've done um, at my hospital which hopefully is soon to be published um, that was one of the questions that I asked how do they rate the level of support and um, it was an overwhelming positive response a lot of people said it's what got them
1: And is there anything that uh, you need to be, if you're a dietitian, um, about to start someone on on exclusive enteral nutrition, um, are there sort of hiccups early when they're just starting that they might find that it doesn't agree with them or that are just short term that you need to encourage them that they will subside with time? absolutely yes so again that's all in my initial consult i usually allocate
2: a good hour for that because we talk about the short and long-term benefits but also some potential pitfalls and like i said i think transparency is very important but yes certainly a common one jane is that a lot of patients will describe feeling quite lethargic or a little bit flat in the first week and in my experience um you know 99 percent of the time that passes after the first week so it's about kind of pushing through that and again um using the support available some patients can feel a little nauseous initially um and <laughs> at risk of sounding at all sexist today and i find this more common in men because they have a tendency to you know guzzle them down in in one gulp initially. <laughs> okay. so, it, so it encourage them um you know when the body isn't used to them and they are quite rich um mm. just to take initially and spread them out throughout the day and the other thing that I find is that patients will often feel so much better after two to three weeks on EEN that because they're feeling so much better their motivation to persevere reduces and they think oh you know I can I can maybe introduce a little bit of food. So it's, again, in the initial consult, um, the the evidence supports that EEN does have a reduction on inflammation as early as in the first two weeks. But it's persevering with that, um, yeah, to the kind of six-week point, which is deemed to be the general expert consensus of length of time for emission.
1: And if we think about that first consultation that you talked about, that takes quite some time. What is your assessment process there? What do you what what's part of your assessment for before you start someone on AEM? Sure.
2: Um, again, Jim, from my perspective, the most important aspect to consider initially is the, is the patient's baseline nutritional state. So are they at risk of malnutrition? Are they already malnourished? Um, there is a high instance of malnutrition within this cohort, as I mentioned earlier, which can significantly affect the outcome of their disease so malnutrition can prolong a flare for example it can increase the risk of infection as well as prolonging hospital stays and subsequent recovery times and a lot of dietitians particularly with experience and will be well aware of this but assessing a patient's nutritional status would include your standard malnutrition screening tools full anthropometric history so weight height bmi percentage weight loss over a period of time Um, delving into that kind of weight history and their past medical history so any Crohn's disease related history within the family the Crohn's disease activity so where the disease is located if the patient has stricturing or fistulating disease any previous surgical histories particularly if, if they've had resections in the past not only is it um, very important to know what has been removed, but what also is left inside, because as we know, you know, nutrients are absorbed in various parts of the of the bowel. So it's important to know that. Um, but also symptomatic history. So looking for any issues that impact their nutritional state or status. So abdominal pain, distension, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea um, rectal bleeding. Um, but also things like um, stool frequency, consistency, and volume. A lot of patients, Jane, with IBD, which is completely understandable, they associate, you know, the more food they eat, the more times they'll have to go to the toilet. And that can be hugely debilitating if you're trying to run a family home or go to work, you know. So a lot of them will self-restrict. And that is one of the reasons is so rife within this group but based on all of this data the dietitian would then recommend the course of action Um, and if the patient is referred for
1: EEN the dietitian would then begin the advocacy and the education. And I assume Liz in that first consult you set some goals with the patient as well Um, and so what are those goals that you set? Yes, absolutely.
2: Um, and the goals, Jane, would very much depend on the reason for the referral. So, you know, if they were referred predominantly to get them off steroids or to induce remission, then you'd be setting the goal of length of time. So how long they would be on the EN for. And as I said, the general expert consensus is about six to eight weeks. I usually I'm very happy if we get them to six weeks. <laughs> but the goals of treatment um, also can include things like symptom relief, optimising their nutritional status, particularly if you've established that they are or they have any um, degree of malnutrition, um, avoiding any side effects um, and subsequently improving their overall quality of life. Um, with the ultimate goal, goal being induction of remission for these patients. Um, oftentimes as well, patients may need a few days to process the information you know it's a big consultation that initial consult and we give an awful lot of information i would always support it with written information and my contact details and encourage the patient to give me a call if they had forgotten anything but um you know sometimes patients um would opt to go for pen which is partial entry nutrition initially and before they go into EEN and partial entry nutrition would be where the drinks would supply about 50% of their requirements so they may have three to four drinks a day plus maybe the dinner and a snack and so that's another option and that can often help with you know if the patient is seeming quite anxious or you know worried about
1: um, embarking on this so there's a few avenues we can take. So the main uh, reason you would do that PEN is really just to wean them onto the notion of exclusive enteral nutrition just to have a stepping stone before you go from all to nothing in food.
2: Yeah absolutely but it can also I tend to use pen um, as, a, as a way of transitioning back to food as
1: well. So Liz you've come to a decision with your patient to start on exclusive enteral nutrition what's important to consider when you're choosing the formula that you're going to start on? obviously that's one of the most important things from the point of view of
2: adherence so as um a lot of dietitians out there will be aware, Um, oral nutrition supplements broadly fall under three different formulations. So there's elemental, which is the pre-digested feed, and was originally the supplement of choice in Crohn's disease, but we've moved on a lot since then. Semi-elemental formula, formula, which is partly digested, and then whole protein or polymeric formula, which is the one that we would go for. Um, elemental formula has been phased out as a first-line option predominantly because it was quite unpalatable it had a very bitter taste due to the amino acid content and consequently was generally not well tolerated but studies um, have demonstrated over the years that there's no difference in efficacy between elemental and polymeric or whole protein formulas so therefore obviously the better tasting easier to tolerate option would be preferred But as well as palatability, whole protein formulas are now the top pick due to their advantages, which do include their cost, variety, um, availability um, and the ability to be able to use them alternatively between oral and enteral routes of administration. Um, Generally speaking as well, these drinks are tend to be lactose free or low lactose most are gluten-free um, and come with or without fibre as required. Generally speaking, Jane, I wouldn't restrict fibre with Crohn's disease unless the patient had stricturing disease. So it is great to have that option available. Um, and the nutrition adequacy of EEN is, of course, most important as the patient is using this as a sole source of nutrition for the six to eight weeks. Um, therefore, it is crucial to ensure micronutrient requirements as well as macronutrient requirements are um, available. And a lot of these drinks are nutritionally complete
1: formulas. And is it okay to mix a milky-based formula with a juice base? You can have a combination?
2: Yes, absolutely, you can. Yes. I would never, Jane, um, put any of my patients on the juice based formulas solely, purely because they tend to be fat free. So they're not nutritionally complete. They're missing the fat soluble vitamins, the essential fatty acids, that kind of thing. But absolutely, if a patient, say, required seven or eight drinks a day and they had, you know, five or six of the milk based drinks and a couple of the fruit juice, that's completely fine. Yes.
1: And is excess quite easy for patients um, to get hold of ONS?
2: Yes. Well, I really can only speak
1: about Queensland, but um,
2: it's different state to state and certainly between sites even. But in Queensland, patients are established on HENS, a home entry nutrition support service, um, which is subsidised for patients needing EN as a treatment option. So, um, so, yes, it is heavily subsidized and an average in Queensland, it will cost the patient roughly about $150 for four weeks supply, which when you consider they don't have a food bill for themselves in that four weeks, it does work out quite reasonable. Um, it's still absolutely a consideration, particularly where I work, it's a socio-economic area, so it's absolutely a consideration. But again, that is in the initial discussion. Um, with the patient,
1: yeah. and are there any other foods or fluids allowed at all during EEN? No, we're very, very cruel, aren't we? Um, <laughs> ideal,
2: ideally, not. No, just EEN and water. If a patient is really struggling, I will generally allow a cup of black or green tea or coffee, um, but I do this cautiously, um, as we simply don't know the impact of this. So yeah, and
1: you mentioned uh, duration optimally, and from what we know from the research, six weeks. Um, yes, but is that flexible? Do you vary that? How? how what do you do with duration? Sure. Um, there is no evidence in the literature
2: comparing length of treatments on EEN at the moment, and there is huge variation in the length of time EEN is used for to manage you know, various aspects of the disease and it ranges from anything from about 10 days to greater than three months. The poor patients who are on EEN for three months, but anyway, Mm. Um, but the duration of EEN should be determined by the purpose and the clinical goal of using EEN which I t- touched on initially um, I was involved in a NASPEN group that um, we put a toolkit together for it was called Exclusive Enternutrition an Optimal Care Pathway for Use of Adult Patients in with Active Crohn's Disease and there's a nice little there's quite a few little tables in there that are quite helpful but the recommendation of EEN for various indications for EEN so for example for induction of remission it's about six to eight weeks if een is being used to bridge medical therapy um, it's anything from four to 12 weeks until maintenance therapy is within a therapeutic range um if if een is being used as a sole source of nutrition or to optimize the, the patient's nutritional status prior to surgery you're looking at about four weeks two to four weeks generally um and alternatively, if a patient, if EN is being used, if a patient has an abdominal abscess or a fistula, which is a tract between two organs that shouldn't be there and is a complication of the disease, generally it's about six to twelve weeks with monitoring um, throughout. That's the general recommendation.
1: And Liz, you've you've talked to us about um what you do with the assessment and the importance of that ongoing support. And a little bit about troubleshooting, yeah. can you tell us a little bit more about the monitoring process and what dietitians uh, should be monitoring once their patients have started EN? Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. Um, so as I said, Jane, it's very,
2: very regular at my hospital where I see my patients once a week, but in those ses- assessments and they're quite, they can be quite quick, particularly when you build a relationship and get to know the patient, but absolutely monitoring their weight and physical symptoms such as abdominal pain, nausea, diarrhea, bleeding, um, as well as as subjective markers like their energy levels, their quality of sleep and overall quality of life. Um, And these are all very pertinent to ascertaining if the patient is responding to EEN. Also, um, I would work quite closely with the gastroenterologists um, and we would monitor pathology, biochemistry, if available with a focus on things like full blood count and inflammatory markers. Calprotectin is a um, a very useful measure um, in the stool sample. And it's very useful because it's a particularly sensitive marker of inflammation, albeit it's not specific. So very sensitive in that it picks up the smallest amount of inflammation in the gut, but not specific in that it doesn't tell you where in the gut the inflammation is. So consequently, imaging... Modalities like gastrointestinal ultrasound are also very useful. And these are gaining an awful lot of popularity due to their non invasive nature. They're very quick and they're quite cheap, relatively speaking, in comparison to alternative invasive procedures like, for example, a colonoscopy. Um, Yes, and then standard nutritional assessments and treatment adherence should also be undertaken.
1: So just on um, the question of, sorry, the pathology or the biochemistry and um, the Calprotectin, would they routinely yes. have that measured at certain intervals during the E.N.? <laughs>
2: that would depend really um, as i said i'm I'm very lucky in my hospital and we have a very close relationship with the gastroenterologist so if my patient for example is you know malnourished pre een then it is definitely something that i would request during the treatment right. um, but as a general rule um we would have full blood um panel done before EEN and calprotectin, and then we would repeat that immediately, or when I say immediately, within the first week, ideally, after EEN.
1: Right. And you see it change, it will change that quickly? absolutely yes yeah oh. yeah you, we can see a
2: reduction in inflammation within two weeks on een um in some cases but yes um ideally calprotectin it depends it depends not only where in the country but where in the world you work i've yeah, noticed right. this with yeah. my uk experience and here but as a general rule um a calprotectin of under about 100 is deemed normal and that can vary hugely i had a, a young woman in in the last few months and she had a calprotectin tectin of sixty two thousand, and she was admitted to hospital i know yeah she was very very ill but we put her on een and within six weeks that came down to about 400 wow so still indicating there is some Mm -hmm. inflammation there but you know significantly better
1: yeah and so if there's if there's no sort of set rigid duration of treatment how do you know when it's time to stop een well, <laughs> as
2: I said, there's there no kind of duration specifically indicated, but the overall expert consensus, I suppose, around the country is six to eight weeks if remission is is the ultimate goal. So generally I will always try and get my patients to six weeks. Um, I find again and again, this is only my experience and um, I'm sure there's lots of dietitians out there with very variable experience, but I find that men as a rule tend to be slightly better compliers purely because I suppose they they're more pragmatic about it, whereas understandably you know women can be a little bit more emotional about it dare I say or again at risk of being sexist I find a lot of my patients the women are the the sole kind of meal provider and you know they prepare the children's more um, and consequently that can pose its own problems But, but
1: yes sorry if you see um after a couple of weeks if someone's not improving do you persevere or do you decide that this is not the right therapy for them
2: no absolutely no
1: if if after 2 weeks they're not
2: feeling any better their symptoms their physical symptoms haven't improved i would liaise with the gastroenterologist and the patient again it would it would depend how they how much they're struggling with it as well and um, but we would then probably get a new set of bloods done And again, if no improvement there, then the decision would be made to withdraw treatment at that point or maybe go to Penn in that case and allow the patient to have some food. But usually you will see a clinical response within the first two weeks.
1: And then that leads on to if you manage to get through to the six weeks uh, and you see improvements, patients feeling better, then what? How do you then get them back onto food?
2: Um, so patients should progress naturally onto onto an unrestricted diet after the, you know, the prescribed course. So let's say six weeks in this case. So I would generally and and this is varied again across the country um, and the variations are minor, but. I would generally start by by reducing the drinks to about 50 percent of their nutritional requirement and recommend kind of three to four snack type meals a day initially, which would be something like um, a small portion of um, like roast chicken or white fish with rice or sweet potato, maybe a small omelet with a little bit of cheese or maybe something like a little bit of avocado or smooth peanut butter on toast. So small frequent snacks would be better bearing in mind that the patient hasn't had any solid food for six weeks um, the initial diet should include foods that are easy to digest and not too heavy um, I find that smaller portion sizes more frequently are easier in the gut than you know one to two very large meals a day particularly during the first few weeks um, and additionally while and I touched on this earlier Jane I don't as a rule, restrict fiber in patients with Crohn's disease unless they have stricture in disease. Um, and there is a lack of evidence to indicate that certain dietary components contribute to unsuccessful food reintroduction. I would generally still opt for moderate to lower fiber for the initial one to two days. And this can help reduce the likelihood of functional gastrointestinal symptoms like bloating, wind, abdominal discomfort um, when the patient is recommencing solid food and the disease is hopefully in remission. But the ultimate goal is to have the patient on an unrestricted, healthy, balanced diet, ideally keeping very highly processed foods, additives and particularly emulsifying agents. So emulsifying agents are compounds that are added to food to keep fat in suspension. And they're getting an awful lot of attention at the moment as being something that's potentially directly contributing to Crohn's disease. Um, so, yes, I would spend a lot of time in the initial assessment and touching on it throughout the EEN, educating the patient on this so that they it can be achieved more easily over time and they're comfortable with what they will be doing and how they will progress back to food, because that can be quite daunting and quite scary for most patients.
1: Yes, yeah, so I was about to say Do they do they love it or are they terrified by it?
2: I think it's a mixture. It's um it's it's a mixture of um many emotions, I think. Most of them absolutely cannot wait to get back on food as you can understand and a lot of them will consequently say the last few days on the diet are tough as well because you know food and getting back to normal is so um, tantalizingly close yeah. <laughs> but um, but there is it does come with an element of anxiety as well understandably particularly if they have been extremely symptomatic before EEN um, and some of those symptoms could include you know bowels opening upwards mm. of 20 times a day mm. so understandably that comes with its own
1: level of Anxiety and trepidation. And the patients who are on or starting or continuing or are on exclusive enteral nutrition, are they generally seen in specialty clinics? Like, would there be dietitians in the community being faced with patients on EN? Sometimes would they be referred out? I was just wondering whether it, this is mm. sort of something that you really only see in the gastro specialty clinics or whether, you know, there are some dietitians out there trying to manage it on their own, which must be difficult.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: It is. And it can be very daunting. Um, And it's
2: one thing that I feel very strongly about Jane and, 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 you know, I'm probably, I fully acknowledge I'm probably a little bit biased towards this, but I feel that there is a lack of knowledge in this area. Um, so I openly support, you know, if there's anybody out there who wants more information, by all means, I'm more than happy for you to give me a ring. I also have done a lot of work with the Crohn's Colitis Association and um, I, I'll i give it a little plug now, but I wrote a, um, it's about a 12 line, a 12 hour, sorry, online course on Smart, which is a platform platform on the cca website um, so there's five modules on ibd which i've written and then there's one fantastic module on celiac disease which emma halmos in um, melbourne um, helped our wrote wrote as well so that is there and that's targeted at qualified dietitians to upskill them in this particular area
1: yes because it can be Frightening for the dietitian as well, can't it? Really, because Absolutely. if it's new Absolutely. and you haven't faced it before, uh, there's a lot of to course. consider. As you've gone through, yeah, there is, and and you know
2: these patients are are very very ill. um So you know, obviously, you want to get it right, and yeah, but more than happy for them to give me a a call or or whatever. It's important that as a group we feel supported. I think,
1: and we'll put. The resources and the uh, OSPEN guide that you mentioned um, in the show yeah. notes um, with this podcast. Um, is there any are there any final key points that you want to re-emphasise for dietitians that they should keep in mind that we might have missed um, if they're working with someone on EEN? I
2: think we've, we've covered we've covered a lot. Today, <laughs> I think, but um, I think it's I think it's really just. Um, you know, knowing where to get the information. You're not expected to to know everything about everything, um, but. You know, um, we have a um, there's a national group that was set up by um, a colleague of mine in Melbourne called decan and that's out there to support dietitians in this area as well. It's a networking group um, that's very useful. And as I said, by all means, I'm more than happy to be contacted by dietitians, particularly, you know, if you're a sole trader and out there on your own with not a great deal of
1: support. Well, I think that's that's really helpful, and and it's nice to know that there is somewhere that you can turn if you are trying to manage. And I imagine that yeah. there's probably some dietitians who do work closely with a gastroenterologist and would actually like to have this as part of their management toolbox for for IBD, but don't necessarily know how to go about it. So I think the insights that you've given us today and those really practical ideas on how to help the clients with IBD who are on this path um, achieve good outcomes is really, really helpful. And as I said, we'll put all of the resources that you've mentioned in the show notes. And I um, want to also thank Abbott for supporting our podcast today because the support of our partners allows us to keep offering education to dietitians. But Liz, Liz thanks very much for, for giving us your time today.
0: My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Jean. To get all of the links and resources we discussed through this episode, you can go to dietitianconnection.com slash podcasts. And if you'd like to support the Dietitian Connection podcast, please leave a review for us and a rating on the Apple Podcast app. Tell us what you thought about this episode, what you learned and share your guest requests for us to consider for future episodes. We really value hearing from you and we really value your feedback. So please, please hit that review button.